Hey there, welcome. This is Daniel M. from Beulah Alliance Church. As we open up the scriptures together, I hope this helps you know Jesus deeply and be known by him fully. Enjoy the message. Life goals. Do you have any? Uh, Some people call it their bucket list. Others call it their things to conquer. Whatever you may refer to it as, do you have any life goals? Maybe growing old with a loved one is uh, one of your life goals. Or or maybe it's going on a big family vacation without leaving anyone at home. (laughs) Uh, Or perhaps using pumpkins, this is all pumpkins, it's doing an epic pumpkin carving to impress all your neighbors at Halloween. Uh, or, Or maybe it's eating chicken like a boss, like Mr. Bean. Like, no shame, right? Just go one after another. Or, or maybe it's, it's pulling off a TikTok dance like this. <laughs> or perhaps because the World Series is going on, it's catching a baseball at a game. Conway Jr. turns on one, but hooks it inside the foul. Look out below. Look at this. Uh-oh. She's so close. The fight is on. So close. She's going. Looks like she's going to get it. Looks like she's going to oh, get it. Oh, Dave. Dave. Look Come at Dave. Dave. <laughs> that is cold Dave. Wow. Oh, no. He even has his name on his kayak. <laughs> what are we doing out there? Oh, crazy. Did we? Oh, but look, he gives the baseball. Oh, that again. There we go. Isn't that awesome? Oh, man. If this is your first time with us at Beulah, in campus or online, we are so glad that you're here. We are in season three of Philippians, and we've been journeying for the last couple weeks, uh, learning how knowing Jesus is truly greater than everything. And for Paul, the author of this letter to the Philippians, his life goal wasn't to do any of the things that we just laughed about, those weren't his life goals. His life goal instead was to know Jesus. He says in verse 10, my goal is to know him. And he didn't say this as his last resort because he failed at everything else. On the contrary, he actually succeeded in pretty much everything he touched. He accomplished so many of his life goals that no one could have gone toe-to-toe with him, which is why he said what he said in Philippians 3, verse 7. We looked at this last week. But everything that was a gain to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Everything that used to be a gain for Paul isn't a gain anymore. All of his previous life goals, all things that he used to take pride in, he's saying here are garbage compared to the surpassing value of knowing Jesus. I love what the theologian G.I. Packer says in his book, Knowing God. Once you become aware that the main business that you are here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into their place of their own accord. Now when Paul says that his goal is to know Jesus, what, what does that mean? Right? Does it mean that he wants to write the best biography of Jesus 
It's possible. Like, yeah, Jesus was born in Bethlehem to a virgin, Mary, and then later on, he then, his family went and fleed to Egypt, but he eventually grew up in Galilee and, and on and on and on. Did he want to know all the facts, right? Write the best Wikipedia entry, perhaps? No. When Paul's saying that his goal is to know Jesus, He's saying he wants to know Jesus personally and relationally. So he wants to walk like Jesus walked, breathe like Jesus breathed, think like Jesus thought, act like he did, love the things that Jesus loved and care about the things that Jesus cared about. That's what he's talking about here. He wants to know Jesus. He wants to be in right relationship with him. And, and if that's the case, we got to think, right? Like, how did he get to that point? How was his heart shaped in such a way? And, and I think Psalm 63 uh, probably had something to do with it. He probably made this his prayer on a frequent basis. Take a look at what Psalm 63, the, the prayer in Psalm 63. God, you are my God. I eagerly seek you. I thirst for you, my body faints for you in a land that is dry, desolate, and without water. So I gaze on you in the sanctuary to see your strength and your glory. My lips will glorify you because your faithful love is better than life. So I'll bless you as long as I live. At your name I will lift up my hands. You satisfy me as with rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I think of you as I lie on my bed, I meditate on you during the night watches because you are my helper. I will rejoice in the shadow of your wings. I follow close to you. Your right hand holds on to me. And I bet this was a frequent prayer of his. Whether he felt it or not, he probably prayed psalms like this and that's what helped cultivate and shape his heart to want to know God above all else. Paul understands that the, that the only way, right, the only way that he's going to truly know Jesus, yes, praying prayers like this, but, but he's got to live like Jesus to, to, to know him deeply, right? Yes, in the, in the everyday stuff of, of life as we gather, grow, give, and go together, but also on the mountaintops and in the valleys, not forsaking Jesus when things get tough, and not just following him in the harvest and abandoning him in the winter, but we have to follow him in his resurrection and his death, and also, as we're going to see today, in his power and his suffering. So take a look at our verses that we are gonna be looking at today, Philippians 3, verse 10 and 11. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, assuming that it will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. Now, here's the thing. I don't know many people who want both power and suffering, right? Typically, if you want power, you don't want suffering. Uh, And if you want suffering, you don't want power and all the attention that comes with it. But as we're going to discover today, you can't know power unless you know suffering, and you can't know suffering unless you know power. They're tied together. So let's start with the power side of things, and we'll see in our first point how knowing Jesus means learning how to live 
a life of power. What does it mean to live a life of power? Right? What is power anyway? Where is power? There's power in gender. There's power in ethnicity. There's power in your age. There's power in your height. You know, ask anyone who's really tall or short and they can attest to that. There's power in your experience. There's power in where you live. More specifically in the neighborhood that you are in. There's power in health and a seeming lack of power in unhealth. We give and take power away from each other, right? Like in jobs and in work, you, if you're entrusted with more responsibility, you have more power. At home, family responsibilities, we give and take power, right? Giving, handing your keys to your teenagers, that's power. And then taking them away <laughs> because of how they drove, right? That's, that's taking away power, but that's the distribution and the taking away of power, right? Like this, what Paul is talking about here, he's not talking about all of that. He's not talking about distributed or delegated power. He's talking about the source of power. So take a look at what he says again in Philippians 3.10. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection. So when he talks about power here, the power that he's talking about is the power that God guards and protects us with. He's talking about the power that resurrected Jesus from the grave and that's also gonna resurrect us. And he's talking about the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. He's, he's talking about the power of the gospel. So when Paul says here that he wants to know him and the power of his resurrection, he's talking about knowing Jesus, and the, the, who is the power of God and the wisdom of God, who is seated at the right hand of God. So in verse 10, Paul is essentially saying that you can't know Jesus, right? There's no way, there's no way that you can know Jesus unless you know the power of his resurrection. We can't separate the two. And that's why we worship the resurrected Christ, right? That's why the empty cross is a sign, not only of what Jesus has already done, but what's going to also happen to us. Friends, the greatest illustration of power in all of time and eternity is the resurrection of Jesus. It's not the crown. It's not the prime minister's office. It's not the executive office of the president, the corner suite of the CEO, or even the SMP for that matter. That's not power. The power, the greatest illustration of power is the resurrection of Christ. Take a look at what it says in 1 Corinthians 15. For I passed on to you as, what are those two words? most important, not somewhat important, or I passed on to you some news, the news that I received, no, as most important, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and he appeared to Cephas then to the twelve. This is what's most important. So if knowing Jesus means learning how to live a life of power, what does that look like? 
Right? Like, how do we do that? What, like, how, how do we live a life of power today? Well, it doesn't mean powering up, right? It doesn't mean amassing power, and, you know, it doesn't mean finding a ring of power like Golem says, my precious, right? That's not what Paul is talking about here. Or in Shrek, you know that green monster, uh, saying what Lord Farquaad said to the knights before they fought Shrek. Some of you may die, but it is a sacrifice I am willing to make. What? <laughs> it's like, wait a second, what did you just say? And then in the next scene, these, uh, everyone holds up applause signs <laughs> as if we're supposed to agree to that. Friends, living a life of power means not any of that. It means living a life filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what living a life of power looks like today. This is why the Bible tells us to be filled uh, by the Spirit. Take a look at Ephesians 5, verse 18 to 21. And don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled by the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and make mu- making music with your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of of Christ. So when we are filled with the Holy Spirit, we are empowered by the Holy Spirit, which means that this is what's going to happen, right? We're not going to be living reckless lives, but where we will be encouraging one another with the scriptures, in songs, sharing worship songs with one another as prayers for each other where we will be living with these attitudes, not of entitlement, but of gratitude, always giving thanks to God our Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, right? That's what it looks like to live a life of power because living a life of power means being empowered by the Holy Spirit. When we're empowered by the Holy Spirit, we'll also be strengthened with this power. We'll be filled with the presence of the Holy Spirit, which means that we'll be filled with power, love, and self-control, not fear. Right? Where fear won't reign in our lives or in the way that we make decisions. Because instead, we'll be filled with confidence, not confidence in ourselves or in our circumstances, but because of the Holy Spirit. Where we'll be empowered to speak the truth, where we'll be empowered to be on mission, and where we will be awakened to awaken those who are spiritually blind, asleep, and dead to King Jesus. Friends, all of this is true when we are filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And when we are filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit, we don't need to live a life of shame and guilt or fear. We can live a life of confidence. So how, right? How can we then be filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, it's simple. We first confess our sins, and then we ask. In Ephesians 5, being filled with the Holy Spirit means that we are filled and continuously filled with the Holy Spirit. So, So what often gets in the way of that is unrepentant sin, 
habitual sin, so we need to ask and confess and repent of that, and then we just ask, Lord, would you fill me? Father, would you fill me with your Holy Spirit? Now, here's the thing about power, right? Uh, Like I said earlier, we can't know power unless we know suffering. We can't know suffering unless we know power. So let's now talk about the suffering side of things and see how knowing Jesus means learning how to live a life of suffering. So what does this mean? This is our second point. What does this mean to live a life of suffering? Well, to talk about this, I want to show you uh, and and help you understand Johnny Erickson Tata's story. And I want you to hear from her uh, what this point means. So let's watch this. Suffering is uh, not much good in it, but it will teach you who you are. It's a textbook that will show you the stuff of which you are made, and sometimes it's not very pretty. Suffering will squeeze that out of you. You know, we say we know Christ. Well, okay, the next time you suffer and suffer hard, find find out what comes out of your mouth. That, that'll show how much you know Jesus. And so in that sense, it's, 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 it's good in, in a strange way. I was the last of four girls. My daddy wanted a boy, so I got the name Johnny. And the family was very athletic, so I was scrambling to keep up with everybody. which is probably why I took that reckless dive into shallow water at the age of 17. I was athletic, thought I could take an inward pike dive and pull out of it quickly enough, but I didn't. I took a dive off of a raft into shallow water and immediately struck bottom that snapped my head back, breaking my neck at the fourth cervical level and immediately paralyzing me. They took me off to the hospital where I stayed for about a year and a half. When the doctors told my family that I would never walk again or have use of my hands, they conveyed that to me and it it didn't compute. I was sitting up in the hospital bed and a friend came to visit with a guitar. I said, oh, let me play that. And he kind of looked at me weirdly, but obediently he put the guitar on my chest and I said, well, just put my hand up here. And he did and I put my hand on the strings and And I couldn't play them. My mind was saying that I could, because it was so simple. I'd always played the guitar, but but it was a shock to, um, yeah. It suddenly hit me, this is different. My life's never gonna be the same. At night alone, 2 a.m., wanting desperately to cry, but there was nobody around to wipe my nose or dry my eyes, and I couldn't stand being messy at 2 a.m. and not being able to wipe my nose, and so I had to hold a lot in. 
growing up on a farm. I loved to ride horses. I liked hard work. And so when I broke my neck, it was like, wait a minute, I'm, I'm the least likely candidate to do life in a wheelchair. God, you've got the wrong person. It's not me. I'm your athlete. I love to do stuff. And the idea of sitting down for the rest of my life without use of my hands was horrific. I was quite bitter and very depressed, very despondent, because I just could not understand why God would allow something like total paralysis to happen to a young 17-year-old girl, especially to one who called herself a Christian. <laughs> and I felt that, uh, that God had almost deserted me. Right before my diving accident, I knew I was going to go off to college. I knew it could be a crossroads spiritually for me. I was a Christian but temptations were looming. And so I prayed, Jesus, do something in my life to really grip it up. Do anything in my life it's gonna take to draw me close to you. I want that, I need that. And then I broke my neck. And I remember thinking in the hospital, how could you take my prayer so seriously? I mean, I, I really didn't mean this. And I thought, God could never be trusted with another prayer again. And yet, where else am I going to turn? Because he's the only one that's got the words of life. So Jesus, help me understand. Help me get it. How am I supposed to live like this? And what in the world are you doing? And what? how will I survive? I once wrote a book called A Step Further, and that was back in 1978, and it was my effort to, quote, make sense of suffering. God allows suffering to deepen your faith. God allows suffering to refine your character. An alphabetical list of one, two, three, four, the 16 good biblical reasons as to why God allows suffering. And I remember passing it under the nose of Elizabeth Elliot, you know, the manuscript, I wanted her endorsement. And she said to me, I'll never forget it, it's exact, Johnny, it's true, but it's very technical. I was crushed. <laughs> but that was in 1978, and now so many years later, I understand what she means. Because suffering and understanding it is not a matter of good biblical reasons as to what God is doing and why. I think the whole purpose behind it is to press us up against the Lord Jesus and not make suffering so much about us. Oh, how will my faith be refined? How will my prayer life be deepened? What will I now understand about God's purposes? No, it's all about how can I hear His heartbeat? How can I resonate and identify with him and, and his sufferings? So somewhere there, there was a ping, like a change, and I realized it's not about me. My paralysis is about knowing Jesus better. And that, I think, is the summation of it all, just to know him better.
I love what she said at the end. The whole purpose of suffering is to press us up against the Lord Jesus and not make suffering so much about us and how my faith will be refined and how my prayer life will be deepened and, and what I will now understand about God's purposes, but it's all about how we can hear his heartbeat and resonate and identify with Jesus in his sufferings. And then she ended this way, I realize suffering is not all about me, it's about knowing Jesus better. And that's the summation of it all, which is to know him better. That's what Paul's talking about here in Philippians 3.10. My goal is to know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. In other words, we can't know Christ without suffering. Sometimes we want to think otherwise, right? We want, to, we want to just know Christ and his power, and we want to skip all the suffering sort of things. But what Paul is saying here, what Johnny's saying here, is that we can't know Christ. We can't truly know him relationally and personally without also suffering. What Paul's saying here is that suffering is normal. It's what God uses not only to refine our faith and deepen our prayer life, but to draw us near to him and help us know him. Because it's when we fellowship with his sufferings and when we are conformed to him in his death that that's when we truly get to know Jesus. So yes, knowing Jesus means learning how to live a life of power and living a, live a life of suffering and when we live this way, keeping both sides in tension, Paul shows us in the next verse how to live a life of expectation. And that's our third point. This is what Paul is talking about in verse 11, how to live a life of expectation. After talking about knowing Jesus, right, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, he's saying here in verse 11 what it looks like to live an expectant life, verse 11. Assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. Now, you know, if you read this just upon first glance quickly, it might sound like Paul's uncertain here. He's not living a life of expectation, he's living a life of uncertainty about his resurrection, but that's not what's happening here. Paul expects to see Jesus again, but in this verse when he says somehow, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead, he's referring to the timing and the method of that resurrection, not whether or not it'll actually happen. It's the timing and the method. So let me explain in 1 Thessalonians 4, he writes this. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, concerning those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again in the same way through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For we say this to you by a word from the Lord, we who are still alive at the Lord's coming will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. 
Then we who are still alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. So what Paul's saying here is, if we are alive when Jesus returns, for those who follow and know Jesus, we will be resurrected without dying. But if we have already passed away when Jesus returns, for those who know Jesus and follow him, we will then be resurrected from the dead. That's what Paul is talking about here in Philippians. That either way, take a look at verse 11 again, that either way, somehow, somehow, I'll reach the resurrection from among the dead. It's gonna happen. It's just the method and the timing for each and every one of us. That's what is uncertain, not whether or not it'll actually happen. Well, in the same way, friends, we can live a life of expectation knowing that we will see our Savior and be with him. Whether we're living or dead or living a life that's more governed at this time by power or more governed by suffering, we will see Jesus and be with him. Knowing Jesus means living a life of expectation, recognizing, right, that this life here and now, power or suffering is not all that there is. So the anxiety that you're feeling or the peace that you're filled with is not all that there is. Or the pain of loneliness that you might be living through or the the joy of connection is not all that there is. (laughs) And all the feelings that come with waiting and and then that feeling of relief that comes afterward, hopefully, this is not all that there is. And living in abundance or living day by day, this is not all that there is. This is what Paul is talking about the regardless of what happens here on earth, if we know and follow Jesus, one day we will be fully living, not with this tension of of this and then this and then this and then this, but, but where we will be one day fully living in confidence and in joy and in love and in peace that cannot be taken away from us contentment, that this is our life that we get glimpses of on this side of eternity, but where we will be forever living in on the other side. This is why Paul said earlier in Philippians, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's what he's talking about here, living this life of expectation, confidence. And then in verse 20 to 21 of chapter three, our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly wait for a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. This is what living a life of expectation looks like. So, my dear brothers and sisters, knowing Jesus is greater than everything. Knowing Jesus is better than the highest of highs and knowing Jesus will get us through the lowest of lows. Knowing Jesus is greater than power and it's greater than suffering. So what would it look like for you to make this your life goal to know Jesus better, 
Perhaps, perhaps it's praying this prayer. Jesus, would you do whatever you need to do in my life? Whatever you need to do in my life so that I would know you more? Maybe you already pray that. And your prayer is actually, it then turns to, Lord, would you do whatever you need to do in the lives of my loved ones so that they would come to know you? And if we would be so bold and courageous to pray a prayer like that, then maybe afterwards it's then accepting whatever may come our way. Because we are in God's hands and he will never leave us nor forsake us. You know, I know this is a really tough thing to pray. Lord, would you do whatever you need to do in my life so that I would know you deeper? Would you do whatever you need to do in my children's lives? In my parents' lives or the lives of those around us, my neighbors, my coworkers, so that we would know you deeper? That's a, that's a really tough thing to pray. But I found not only in my life, but in the lives of, of in your lives, in your stories, in our stories, that it's more often in the suffering and in the pain and in the loss and in the death that we know Jesus deeper and better than in the power. I've known that personally with my dad's unexpected death through cancer. And in the unexpected and tragic deaths of many of yours over these last few years. As painful as that has been, on the other side of it all, we've actually known Jesus better. Friends, Jesus is worth it. Let's watch the rest of Johnny's story. I remember I was a little girl and seeing these old women in church who would talk about how sweet the Savior was. And I think, hmm, okay, I guess old people talk that way. But of all the things I've learned about him, he is so sweet and he's so lovely and he is so worth knowing. He's ecstasy beyond compare. And I would much rather be in this wheelchair knowing I'm like that than to be on my feet without him. Honestly, I would. Thanks for listening and thank you for giving. Your giving makes this podcast possible and helps us share this message with others. If today's message made you realize that you need to take your next step with Jesus, we'd love to help you with that. The easiest way to do that is by going to beulah.family on your browser. On that page, you'll find our social media links, links to upcoming events, and a link to give. 
And don't forget to subscribe and share this podcast. We'll see you soon.